This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Joe Farnsworth. Joe has been in demand on the New York jazz scene for decades now with an especially wide range of jazz artists, including Wynton Marsalis, Pharaoh Sanders, McCoy Tyner, Diana Krall, and Kurt Rosenwinkel, to name a few. He has just released his eighth album as a leader, entitled In What Direction Are You Headed? We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. As I alluded to earlier, Joe has played with an incredible variety of jazz artists, ranging from straight ahead to avant-garde, but he has cultivated an identity for himself behind the drums and otherwise that has proven sort of universally valuable by artists of all stripes. So let's get into what that identity is and how he came to it. Here's Joe Farnsworth. record of yours just dropped a couple days ago is that correct yes it just came out last week nice um and this is like your fourth or fifth as a leader correct or more um this is my third for smoke sessions and uh previous i did three for the japanese and i did one for crisscross the dutch label many years ago got it so quite a few uh, um, i would say like eight let's say eight yeah cool um so was the approach to this one different from the others? Was it a continuation of the others? Um, to tell you the truth, I, I, there's a pattern that I now I see that I, I was going through um, with my records uh, that there was somebody I identified I wanted to be, 
I wanted to be around and I wanted to document the music that we created together. And uh, I didn't really notice that at first, but now I see it uh, a long time ago. My very first one was with Cedar Walton. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the guys that I followed around religiously. And one night I was at Bradley's and I heard him play Lament and uh, Beautiful Friendship. And I'm like, man, if I could ever get him to do a record date, I want to do those two songs. It wasn't like I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to do something with him. Mm -hmm. And I started playing with him and we became very close. And for some, uh, he just was, I was very uh, blessed that he said yes. And that was our first date. So the first date was really built around my association with uh, Cedar Walton. He actually was on the cover too, which is, uh, that's one of the thrills of my life to be on the cover with him. Yeah. And called Beautiful Friendship. And then I did a couple of the Japanese. It was with uh, a band that I went over there with, Curtis, oh, geez, sorry, Harold Mayburn and Eric Alexander. Mm hmm. And we've been going over there for years and Nat Reeves. And that was just a natural, that was just a easy, uh, like, let's get this documented. Like, especially in Japan, we're here. And it kind of captures what we're doing at that moment. And the other one was uh, um, one I got to do with Benny Golson and uh, Curtis Fuller and Ron Carter. It's amazing. I, it's, it doesn't even seem real that I had these guys on my, on my record date, but uh, I was playing with Benny Golson was my first real big time gig and I I was like if I could ever capture that moment with him and play uh, I remember Clifford uh, uh, Blues uh, Blues After Dark with Curtis Fuller uh, and, and it was just a, that moment in time I was able to do it so I just I didn't know that at the time but now I see it and then Fast forward to, it's been many years and I want to do something in uh, America. And so I did smoke sessions and um, I've been, I, I recorded with Whit Marcellus at, on the House of Tribes, a live gig. And uh, we became like brothers that day. And mm -hmm. um, I knew in my mind that one day I, I wanted to record with him. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, like a, like that that chip in your pocket like you just wait wait hold on hold on no one to hold them when to fold them i just <laughs> held on and he asked me to do a, a movie uh a, a motherless brooklyn uh maybe like a few years ago mm -hmm. and i knew that was the time i just i, I was a little nervous i went up to him and said, hey would you make a record with me and he said anything for you now which uh was was so kind and then i then i called up smoke and said hey can i make a record with winton of course yeah. Sorry for the long answer, but yeah, so that the, the record was written. I just wanted him. I love when he plays a ballad, the room stops, man. And it's so silent and it's so and, and people are so enthralled with him and so taken into his playing. I said, I would love that's all I wanted was was just to him to play a ballad. My yeah. whole record would be uh, on, uh, based around that. And that's what we did, Darn That Dream. Oh, and man, then we I did love one, that tune. Yeah, and then we did one with uh, Kenny Barron, uh, uh, next record, and this record, uh, coming out of COVID, I got to play with Kurt Rosenwinkel, and um, he kind of he kind of blew me away with this music and his writing and his style. And I, I'd never heard him before. 
believe mm-hmm. it or not. And he and we played at the Vanguard. He kind of uh, smashed the blinders off my eyes. It was possible. <laughs> and I'm like, I've got to, this is what I'm going to base my record on. This record, what direction you're headed through Kurt Rosenwinkel. Yeah. Right. So well, each record I have about, is somebody. Yeah. Right. Like what you're talking about is, um, uh, you know, I think as drummers, um, it's it's kind of our disposition to uh, you know most of us are side men. We kind of wait for opportunities to come to us, um, mm-hmm. and when there's somebody that <clears throat> we really want to play with, you know, oftentimes we think, well, like I just I gotta wait for that person to sort of ask me to do something because they're the creative driver, they're the you know the band leader, whatever. Um, but you know, even if uh, you're not a band leader per se, like if if you can create some opportunity whether it's, you know, making a record or just like a single gig at a bar, <laughs> like <laughs> if you can, if you can ask that person, like, Hey, I got this thing. Well, like, would you be, would you come be part of this thing with me? Most people, if, you know, if they can swing it schedule wise, they'll be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, not many people are going to be like, that's, that's too small time for me. I don't like you. I'm not, you know, they're, <laughs> they're happy to come on to your, you know, whatever you're doing. Right. Yeah. Especially if you, with Cedar Walton and George Coleman, when I first came to New York, I knew I wanted to go to those universities of Cedar Walton and George Coleman. So mm-hmm. I made it my business to show up. Not just that I thought I was going to play with them. I just wanted to learn from them. Right. And, and and by them seeing me all the time, I knew their music inside and out. Not, not that I could play it great, but I knew it. And it helped that Billy Higgins was mostly the drummer on, on both those gigs. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was right there. And so then when Billy started doing other things, like he started going on the road with Pat Matheny, that was uh, that was an opening, and uh, they both asked me to play. So, like, Billy Higgins was one of your early mentors, also Arthur Taylor, also Alan Dawson, correct? Yes. So... Uh, like Alan Dawson caught my attention because um, I, you know, I think he's best known for uh, his educational legacy and, and specifically the rudimental ritual. Um, mm-hmm. What did you, what did you take away from your, your time with him? Well, I mean, I was, I was really young, man. I was uh, eighth grade and freshman oh, wow. year of high school. And uh, I wasn't the greatest student, but <laughs> But I still have um, I still have a lot of his uh, worksheets. Like uh, I wish I could show you. Oh, it doesn't matter. No, I'll show you later. Oh, here's one. Oh wow, it's all handwritten. Yeah. Yeah, man. And he had these uh, a white pad with his name and on the snare drum and his phone number and address, and he'd write out the rudiments. And um, what I took from him, especially at that age, one. Uh, I was really impressed that he had a house <laughs> and like he had a nice, he had a, in his basement, he had a, like you got, you go down into the basement, walk down these stairs and you open the door and, um, a little cowbell rings and he used to come out of the, there's a bathroom to the side and had cream on his hands. I remember the smell of the cream mm-hmm. and he had, uh, lessons every hour. And like, let's say he had 10 lessons a day. It was, it was 9 to 10. It wasn't 9, 15, 10, 15, 9, 10, 10, 11, 11, 12. There was no nonsense. Even though I was young and my father was there, it was like, 
how's your life and uh, uh, personal stuff. It was strict. Uh, he had a he had a system, and the first is you sit down on the pad when your knees are basically touching, and um, it'd be the rudiments, and uh-huh. he could see exactly if you practice or not. Right. And he'd just sit there and, and just look at you, and he wouldn't get down on you if you didn't do it. He just do it again, or you're not going to get to the drum set. <laughs> and it was nothing personal, and that's just the way it was. That dawned on me, and uh, especially giving lessons now. And the other thing was it was always slow down, slow down. I remember him saying that to me all the time, slow down, and yeah. uh, full strokes. And uh, and so, I, you know, when you see guys like Buddy Rich play or Max Roach play or Art Blakey play, they're playing and they, they come down with that full stroke. Mm-hmm. There's only way you're going to get that is to practice a full stroke. If you're practicing a, like a three-fourth stroke, is that as high as you go? If you're playing, that's how, how it's going to go. And I always think in my mind, what are you going to do if you're in a drum battle with Buddy Rich or Max Roach and they're coming from up here and you're going to get destroyed if you can't come up from up there too. So right. those are the three things. Be on time, full stroke, and uh, slow down. <laughs> well, it reminds yeah. me of um, uh, just something I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years uh, when it comes to the rudiments, which is that um, you know the, the rudiments are a set of vocabulary, right? They can be used as content around the drums in a bunch of different ways, but really I think their true value is not in content but in motion like they teach you motion it's the choreography of drumming um mm-hmm. did did Alan uh sort of make that connection with you like how did he approach the rudiments as content or as motion or or both uh it was none of that it was strict um <laughs> I mean I mean maybe because I was young maybe there was someone else but I was young that would have went over my head it was strict um this is what you need to do to play the drums. And this <laughs> yeah. is what this is what we all did. And uh and you could see from him, that was the other thing I was gonna say. His hands were super strong. And that, that was that stood out to you like, wow, those are some strong hands, and those are very, very clean. And the sounds coming out of that drum pad was amazing. And then you're doing a rudiment with them, and your sound is like three times less. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's, that really stood out. And like, does he have the, like, I wonder, does he have the good side of the pad and I have the bad side of the pad? <laughs> and, uh, and so what he, without saying it, he showed me that these rudiments are going to allow you to get a good sound and strong hands, which all the great drummers have like yeah. Lewis Hayes and Art Taylor. And then when you go see them, one of the things I'm drawn to is just how the, their hands look. Billy Higgins, Max Roach, Jimmy Cobb, it's all uh, Kenny Washington, and um, that's what he pre- he never talked about it. He just showed me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we've, um, we've yeah. talked a lot about how um, you know as as drummers, our sound is actually in our hands. It's not in the sticks. It's not in the drums or the heads or the cymbals. Like it's in our hands, and there are so many examples of that. <laughs> You know, like you mentioned, the great ones, like, they they have a sound because of their hands. But it's just mm-hmm. amazing that, like, the, the example you talked about with, with Alan Dawson is that, like, that that difference in sound even showed up on a, on a pad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I saw, 
uh, Clifford Jordan had a memorial at um, at uh, the Village Gate, and they had a um, you know it's a big stage downstairs, and they had a a Yamaha drum set, you know, plastic heads, like a basic rock set, and um, and I walked in there with some guy playing the drums, and I, I immediately thought, damn, those drums sound terrible, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then after him. Arthur Taylor played, bro. You would have thought you were listening to uh, Giant Steps. I'm right. like, wow, man, those drums sound like they just came from Rudy Van Gelder's, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> whoa, and that symbol that's like uh, a tin can. Damn, that sounds like uh, you know, tipping the scales with Jack McLean. It was the same, and like a couple other guys came after him, like, and they went back to being those same sad drums. He didn't make it sound like that. I'm right. like that. That was that was amazing, man. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and a, a lot of those guys sat in on my drums, and I couldn't believe like like uh, At came in and, and sat on my drums a couple times, and you would have thought that my drums like there was like a volume on it that went from like two to nine yeah. when he sounded like. <laughs> Wow, I can't believe the sound coming out of those things, man. Yeah, 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 amazing. I don't generally believe everything I read on Wikipedia, but your Wikipedia page says you went to high school in Jakarta. I did, yes, Apica Bar. Man, how, how, and why did that happen, and what did that do to you during those <laughs> delicate formative years? Wow. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to go to. Uh, two thirty to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my father's a music teacher, and my mother's an English teacher from like grade school. My father's in high school, and in South Hadley they had a proposition two and a half where they cut out a lot of the school funds. Mm-hmm. And I remember they they used to have a button called "Here Today, Gone Tomorrow," and this is nineteen eighty two, and um, they both got uh, relieved of their jobs. Uh, my, the reason my father did, because he had moved from his, he used to teach in my hometown, South Valley, for 30 years. And then he moved to Pittsfield. I mean, he didn't move. He, he started teaching in Pittsfield. It was a higher paying job. So he only had seven years there. And so they both, and same thing with my mother, she went to a different school. So they didn't have that amount of time. They both got laid off. And then how they decided to go to an overseas convention, how they decided to go halfway around the world. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's more to the story, and they're still alive. I should ask them, like, what really did happen? Why did we have to go <laughs> halfway around the world? But then uh, I have four older brothers, and three of them were in college. And my The one above me, James, was going his senior year to Interlochen for music. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it was just me. And so that was really upsetting uh, to leave. But I was there, yeah, for two years, man. Uh, and I joined a rock band there. It was called Lightning with these two Japanese guys and these two uh, kids from uh, Texas. Oh, uh, it was cooking, man. I had a great time. <laughs> these Japanese guys, Ayrto on guitar and Tatsuya on bass, man, we, they played exactly like uh, the Scorpions, Rainbow, wow. or Deep Purple. Yeah. And we, 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 and we, and, and then the lead singer looked like Sammy Hagar before Sammy Hagar. And man, we we were like rock stars there, man. We were literally rock stars, man. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah. 
So did, and what did, I was how to change. I mean, obviously you're you're out of your small town and um and meeting new people. I guess what the big change was immediately that uh I immediately love traveling. I love mm-hmm. being in new places. And I, mm-hmm. I, I I to this day I love going to some town, wherever it is, and trying to find my little role there and try to find the people in the nice little spots to get coffee or whatever. I, I, I yep. like that. Yep. Yeah. I, I I really dig it too. I'm I'm in the middle of a long run with this uh the uh, the the Broadway show uh, ain't too proud the Temptations musical oh great um, and uh, yeah like whether it's you know a, a huge uh, Queen City like San Francisco or a little place like Schenectady where I am now I was about uh, to say you're in a hotel room right yeah yeah I'm in Schenectady but like there's there's okay. something cool about just about anywhere. Um, yes, and it's, yes, it's really it's really fun to like either either you're going to like the big you know tourist thing that it's known for, or you find a little secret coffee shop that only the locals know about. You know, it's it's really fun to just you know breathe the air in, in a bunch of different places. I can tell you, uh, my brothers were uh, were avid or avid record collectors, and because I was going to Indonesia, we'd stop different places around the world. So one of the places was Tokyo. And my brother's like, oh, there's, 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 there's great records there. I don't know how they knew, and I don't know how they knew where the store was. But they, look, I don't even know how you look it up back then. But we, uh, um, we got to Tokyo, me and my parents, and we went to the record store, and I, I bought fifty records that they wanted. Wow! And one of them was a, uh, I forget what it was. One of them was a Weather Report record live in Tokyo. Wow, and it was one of the earliest ones. It's with the uh, Eric Gravat on drums. It's probably seventy-one, maybe, if I'm guessing. Man, I've been listening to Weather Report, like the live one, eight thirty. Yeah, and it's more like poppy, for lack of a better word. But I really loved it, and this one was like whoa. And so I went back through Tokyo again. I bought a Miles Davis live in Tokyo, thinking that it would sound like. The weather report because it's live in Tokyo, and that was, that was my twelve-year-old thinking, and that was the first time I heard Alan. Do- I mean, uh, Tony Williams. I'm like, hmm. damn that 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 changed everything for me, man. And that's where I discovered um, that he took lessons with uh, Alan Dawson. Oh God! So it. I mean, I would have found it probably somehow, but I mm-hmm. found it because I was living overseas. That's amazing! Wow. Yeah. Up until that point, it was strictly like. Buddy Rich, Sonny Payne, and uh, Max Roach, mm-hmm. and and some Art Blakey. Those were the four that I, I practiced to all the time. Right. And then when I heard Tony, I'm like, wow, that that really changed the game for me. In terms of your playing style, in terms of your musical identity, um, you know, Max makes sense, Buddy makes sense, Sonny Payne makes sense. Like, I see mm-hmm. that, I hear that in, in mm-hmm. your playing. How do you feel, and it, like, it's not that I don't see and hear Tony in your playing, but how do you feel 
his whole thing kind of worked its way into your identity? Oh man, I was a, a Tony freak for eight years, man. And uh, <laughs> I just, I, you know, and I used to see him all the time, man. I used, I used to I sit right up front and watch him. And uh, how he, it, ride symbol, uh, even though I don't play blatantly like it, I, I feel that the ride symbol is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just his hands. Yeah. Especially later in life, his hands, uh, watching them like um, in the Vanguard, there, there's a, there's, you got the stage on, on, if you're on the stage to the left of it, there's a row. And uh, it says, the, I guess the wall is a, a couch. And that used to be called Drummer's Row. And <laughs> so when you had guys like, when Tony played there, on that row would be Max Roach, Roy Haynes, Elvin Jones. I mean, they came down to see him yeah. and he'd sit on the drums and he'd open up with like a, it was like a, almost like he was uh, warming up, but it turned into a solo, single stroke, double stroke, Swiss triplet, uh, Rademacuse. And you're like, slower, faster, softer, louder. And it just kept building up until it got into the tune. And his, uh, his hands and the, they're so in control. And yeah. like, that's what got it. It's not really the, I mean, obviously it's, it's hard to play what he played, how, how much drums he played. But I, I would say the ride cymbal, especially in the earlier days, his hands and then the, the, just the power he played with, man. The, you yeah. know, when you see that, it, it's hard not to bring that power because like you just saw it. And then if you go to the gig the next night and you're kind of playing half ass, it doesn't work, man. Yeah, because you just saw ultimate power. It, it's like uh, it's like uh, when Jesus went to the mountain and he turned white. You know, uh, it's like there's no going back after you see Tony Williams, man. There's right. none, right. especially being a leader, how he controlled everything. Yeah. Uh, that, it was stunning, man. It was, so it's more like uh, I never remember asked, someone asking him. Uh, he was smoking a cigar. This was in Northampton. He said, "Hey, man, do you ever do you ever feel a little like?" Uh, like what was how do you say it? like if you haven't played in the bit and you feel a little off when you play and he just wants to start and he said no i'm like wow that's <laughs> burning man that's burning man man i'm i'm so glad you mentioned his his ride symbol um because uh i interviewed um Cindy Blackman Santana uh a few mm-hmm. weeks ago um, and we talked a lot about Tony, of course, and and she mentioned how um, you know beyond uh, or or maybe underneath all of the pyrotechnics that Tony was known for, she said he he played the role of the drummer first and foremost, like just the, oh, the timekeeping role. Um, and you know if you if you listen to his playing, like you know the ride symbol is just relentless. Whatever else is going on, the ride symbol is relentless. And I feel the mm-hmm. same way about your playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other interviews, you've talked about how your your sort of your jazz identity, your jazz drumming personality, is built on just playing time, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> like, first and foremost. And I think when when drummers, um, especially when they first get into jazz. They get wrapped around the axle of like, oh, I got to get this four-way coordination going. I got to get this improvisational dialogue and and you know all this shit going. And and they don't they sort of overlook the importance of the ride symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I've I've come to realize that like if if you don't have good solid swing and ride time, not much else matters. And if you do have it, guess what? Not much else matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, man. So I I really feel that way about your playing. Like, how did you mm. sort of hone in on this this identity of like I'm I'm just gonna be the guy that fucking plays time? <laughs> well, it was a uh, it was I was my first association with greatness playing in New York City is with Junior Cook, tenor mm. player, Horace Silver, Freddie Hubbard, and uh, he was part of one of the last great bebop bands in New York. Uh, the Junior Cook, Bill Hardman group with Walter Bishop on piano and one of my heroes and great friends, Leroy Williams on drums. Mm. And uh, I started playing with Junior and we were in Brooklyn and I used to bug him to death. What can I do better? Well, how can I do this? Why can I do this? And and he's like, just keep playing, man. Just keep playing. And uh, I used to do the same thing with Mr. Golson. And what can I do? Uh, and they would be annoyed and and Junior used to wear a kufi and sunglasses. I never saw his eyes. And I was bugging him again. I'm out in this bar in Brooklyn. What can I do better? What can I do? And uh, right then and there, uh, Miles Davis walking came on with Kenny Clark and Percy Heath. And he looked at me and took his glasses off and said, uh, just play the ride symbol like that. That's all I want. So that's all anybody wants, man. And, and the way that and you could hear through all the noise in the bar, Kenny Clark's symbol was so clear, and it was like crystals, man. And it, it just, it just like it just broke through everything you heard was Miles, <laughs> Percy Heath, and the symbol. I'm like, yeah. and it sounded so good, man. <laughs> and uh, and then the same, and I had the same feeling with. Um, Billy Higgins, seen him play all the time. His mm-hmm. cymbals sound like crystals, man. Like, ding. And it's just like these beautiful things coming down from heaven. And <laughs> it was so clear, man. And like, and I, I like, he, he worked with Monk. He worked with Ornette Coleman. He worked with Cedar Walden. He was a house drummer in Blue Note. He worked uh, all those years with Cedar Walden. And it's because of the, the ride cymbal. And he told me, one story once is like, uh, it's like, man, I've always wanted to be one of those drummers that, you know, here's what he said. He said, a lot of drummers walk in a room and say, here I am. And I said, I've always wanted to be a, a drummer that comes in the room and, and then starts playing. And like 10 minutes later, the horn players turn around and say, damn, who's that? <laughs> and like that, that was like, that makes so much sense, man. Yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And then uh, the reason why I went to Arthur Taylor is because the ride symbol it, it made me feel so good, man. Mm-hmm. There was a record, uh, Jackie's Bag, and uh, side A is Philly Joe Jones, who's the king of kings. We all know it, <laughs> and there's no dispute. And side B is At, and At's kicking ass on that, bro. I'm sorry, yeah. that ride symbol, especially with Jackie McLean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he kind of seals the show to me <laughs> and I said that's what I want man and then uh, that's what it was the last thing I have to say about the ride symbol would be that uh, I'm playing with George Coleman and he said hey and, and he, he sat me down with Harold Mavis like hey man you want some butter with them rolls 
I'm like, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, and then Harold started laughing, but George was serious, so I knew it wasn't going to be anything good. It's like, he started getting kind of mad. He's like, you want some butter with them rolls, man? And the Harold's like, yeah, George, you tell him. He says, he says man, me and Frank Strozier hate it when the drummer marks the one on the top of the chorus. He says, man, I know where the hell one is. I need more Emit. I'm like, what's Emit? He's like, that's Max Roach, man, 1956 when he joined the band. He said, all right, boys, let's play some, let's go up there and play some Emit. And, and that's Max Roach's Emit is time backwards, E-M-I-T. He says, man, when the top of the chorus comes in, go straight through. And uh, you don't have to fill. Mm-hmm. And I used to see Billy Higgins do that all the time with Jackie, Cedar, George, whoever he's playing with, top of chorus, no fill. A straight swing through it. The next chorus, no fill. And, uh, like, the momentum is going up. Mm-hmm. Eight choruses, no fill. Straight through. Where And then he might do at the very end the do-do-do dang. And the place would go crazy, man. Yeah. Because of momentum. And there's another uh, great record called um, Straight No Filter. Lee, uh, Hank Mobley, Lee, McCoy Tyner, Bob Cranshaw, and Billy Higgins. Mm-hmm. And there's a tune that they do on there. It's called Impressions. And McCoy comes out. And if I were on drums, I would I would jump all over McCoy's back. And uh, as Harold Maven says, don't play with me play for me i'd be mm. playing with him and it would make everything heavy and billy higgins man he just plays that ride symbol and that's one of the greatest that's the greatest like uh i would say uh example of what i'm talking about emit don't mark the form and just swing hard man yeah 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 and i, I saw love, it with my own eyes man I, I love what that guy said about that that's all anybody wants just like yeah, play man. the ride symbol like you know because we we get um we get in our heads about like you know how to interact with a certain soloist or how to kind of uh satisfy a certain band leader or whatever but you know this guy mm-hmm. was like all anybody wants from the drummer is just to play the ride <laughs> symbol <laughs> yeah and then harold yelled at me once like when george coleman's doing all this stuff and you like you want to interact and jump on them. Yeah. Uh, that's what Harold would say. That's where you got to play even harder time. Cause you start doing, you going with him and it sounds like gobbledygook. Yep. And I'm like yep. thinking, damn, I don't want to sound like gobbledygook, man. <laughs> so, and so like today I, I hear it like when I'm playing with someone and we're getting energetic and then the piano player jumps in. So everything is going energetic. It's, it's like, Damn, that is gobbledygook. That's when you got to really bear down and swing hard, man. Yeah. Because you start losing that momentum. At least that's how I feel, man. I mean, I I, I believe it, man. I don't feel it. I believe it, man. Well, I mean, if the music is like everything all the time, all at once, um, you know, it it does become uh, just sort of a blur. But Mm -hmm. if if the various musicians, and especially the drummer, have the discipline and the patience to uh you know view see the long arc of of where it's going and like you said not jump all over someone's back right away Mm -hmm. i think a lot of musicians feel that jazz gives them the license to do that like we're in an improvisational interactive um uh genre here so like let's do it but the idea of just not doing it 
for a while <laughs> doesn't occur to a yeah. lot of people. And I've been guilty of it as, as many times as anyone. Just me, you know, me feeling too, yeah. like like you said, you show up and 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 your instinct is to be like, here I am, you know, check me yeah, out. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. with you. Um yeah. but but the idea of just like sort of starting to play and then 10 minutes later everybody's like who who is this i haven't heard any bullshit like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey I man play, playing just ride symbol is just kind of of avant-garde these days man so yeah that's like wow this dude's out man he's playing time <laughs> <laughs> right it's come back around after 70 years after kenny clark it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah man It's not very often that I see a picture or a video of you and you're not in a suit and tie. Mm. Uh, I, I saw one from like 25 years ago where you're wearing like a Nike jacket or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this this look is like definitely a part of your whole, you know, thing. <laughs> and I love it. I'm so here for it because I'm, oh. I'm, I'm also uh, uh, sartorially inclined. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you decide that that was going to be a thing? Uh, it was just, um, the heroes that I saw, uh, George Coleman, Johnny Griffin, um, Cedar Walton, Clifford Jordan, Benny Golson. These guys were wearing suits. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the drummers then weren't like Alvin, like the superstars, but, um, you know, all all the record covers, all the, like, you know, you see photos of people in the, uh, in the studio, even wearing suits, uh, you go and see like uh, Hank Jones in the audience, and he's wearing a three-piece suit. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really uh, it was my one of my first gigs would be uh, Benny Golson, and then um, and he just looked so sharp, and there was no there was no other way I could show up, man. And uh, <laughs> now, that being said. Roy Haynes would come by and he could be wearing like a $3,000 belt cowboy hat and like yeah. a, this like silk shirt. Right. And he'd rock my little suits world. I just can't get there. I don't have the money for that. So a suit is like <laughs> an easy way for me. And uh, I, the last, one of the last tours I did with Benny Golson was like a 60 year um, celebration of his music. First three weeks it was, it was Curtis Fuller, Dwayne Berno, Jeff Keezer, and Brian Lynch on trumpet. The last three weeks was with Art was with Art Farmer, mm. and Art, Benny, and Curtis all had suits and tie. And uh, when they did like the sound check, it was so elegant, man. It was, you just, it, it was so soft and so uh, warm, and the like the. 
it was like I, that was like a really a, like a peak into heaven, like almost like meeting someone like a Duke Ellington. It was like royalty, and then you go to the bar, and then Art Farmer would uh, he took out his pocket square and gave it to me because I never had one. Hmm. And he says, "Man, it's like, and he's like, I can't be playing with someone that doesn't have a pocket square." And he put it in the thing, I'm like, <laughs> and so that is, uh, and then Cedar Walton had one. And uh, I noticed Ron Carter had one. So that's just a straight-up tribute to, uh, well, basically Art Farmer with those other guys. Like, And so I get a lot of money, and where I could I get, like, really cool stuff like Roy Haynes, I'm going to stick with it, man. <laughs> there was two times I didn't, bro, and it was a disaster. One was uh, I was on a, a, this gig with someone in Italy, and they're like, hey, it's casual tonight. You know, just don't wear a suit. I'm like, that sounds funny to me, it, it, being in Italy and it's casual. Right. Like, when is it ever casual in Italy, man? Yeah. And I didn't, and I got my ass kicked, man. These old people coming in, like, like look great, and I'm sitting there in like a like a polo shirt. I'm like, damn, mm. was I mad? And then another time, it was a it was a, just a Tuesday night organ gig, and uh, Hank Jones was there. And not only was Hank, I, I got in the gig start at seven. I got there at six forty five. Rushed in. Hank Jones was already there, like five thirty for a seven o'clock gig, and he's just a listener, and and he was wearing a three piece suit. I'm like, he was like a little late, young man, for the gig. I'm like, damn, I can't believe this. <laughs> like, oh man, he just schooled me, man. Like, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I said, I'm not doing that again, man. I'm not. You know, when Harold <laughs> says they they see you before they hear you, man. I, yeah, I believe that, man. Absolutely, absolutely, man. Now that being um, said, bro, I did a gig. At the Vanguard, January with uh, Mel Dow and Chris uh, McBride, mm-hmm. and there was no suits to be found thirty miles from those guys, and they <laughs> kicked ass. I'm like, well, I guess if I, I if I get to be that good, maybe I can switch my shit up. <laughs> I don't think you have to though. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like they said, like you said, they they see you before they hear you, mm-hmm. and you know what you wear can can play into how you want to be heard how you want to be perceived and so this is all coming together for me now like your your look not only is sort of a physical manifestation of your sound right because i i think you know the the suit and tie look that you've cultivated just overlaps perfectly with the musical mm-hmm. identity you've cultivated in terms mm-hmm. of just playing time, solid mm-hmm. swinging, fucking lockdown at all times. Mm-hmm. But it's also this 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 great uh, homage to sort of the legacy that you come from and the heroes that you carry with you. Hey, remember remember uh, Art Blakey's groups? Like I didn't see him in the eighties mm-hmm. and. 70s but you see the records they're like like, wearing like overalls like dude i I went to grad school i went to grad school uh (laughs) under bobby watson and he was part of that that whole era and yeah like overalls and cowboy hats like (laughs) yeah it it was cooking but you looked on the record like it's just on the record like wow that's well that's that's really unusual right and then when came in that how that ever changed and then you see art blakey and the shit kind of went up and Mm -hmm. um and uh I just, I, I, for me, like, uh, I, I believe in that, man. Like, and, and I, I, just for myself, man, I, I don't care if anyone else does. And I believe in that. Like, I, like, I, I like to go, even if my, if my kids, like you go to your kids, uh, you have a, uh, you have a, uh, uh, meeting with the school principal for your eight, your eighth grade son. I could go like this 
But when you walk in with a suit, it changes things, man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, just, I, mean, I just do. I might be the same person. Maybe I'm hiding something. I don't know, but I'm wearing it, man. And it's yes. just, it just upgrades my your thing. But you're right. It's a, it's a definitely, um, I feel so strong about those, uh, those guys I met, Art Farmer and Benny Golson and Curtis Fuller, that uh, I can't, you know, I, I'm going to keep that with me. Yeah. Yeah. What's coming up next for you, man? What's, what do the next few weeks and months look like? Um, I'm going to uh, uh, France in t- uh, next week for like three weeks. And it's with uh, me and uh, Wallace Roney Jr., the trumpet oh, cool. player. And so we got two weeks over there. And then uh, that's a big deal. It's, it's uh, leading the group there. So it's always good, to, you know, uh, making that transition from sideman to leader. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult, man. Uh, it's been it's not the easiest process for me. But uh, uh, then that and then I come back and we go right to the vanguard with uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome, yeah. man. Who, but, who I can guarantee you, he will not be wearing a suit, but I will be. <laughs> I've, like, I saw a couple of videos. I think it was playing with you. Like, he's he's rocking the beret these days, isn't he? He's got, like, a, a beret and, like, a, a pineapple shirt, man. Yeah, he's cooking on that. <laughs> yeah, man. That's that's a look as much as any other. <laughs> it sure is, man. It's working because there's no one better, man. So it's working yeah. for him. Yeah. Well, I I love, you know, what you talked about, about just, you know, playing time. Uh, and you've, you've talked about so many different musicians that you've mm-hmm. played with over the years. Um, and, you know, they, they, they run the gamut from the most straight ahead to, you know, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty out there avant-garde, mm-hmm. but like your identity of like just playing time has bridged the gap between this huge variety of mm-hmm. um of artists um and it's 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 refreshing and inspiring and 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 keep it up <laughs> thank you well, i can't leave you without talking about i'm looking at his picture the great jimmy lovelace mm-hmm. and uh he was my roommate for eight years and uh i just can't tell you how what a great drummer he was man you could see him on youtube with the um West Montgomery and Harold Mayburn. And um, he's on some records with George Benson, the cookbook. But he was uh, he was very, very, very smooth, man, and played perfect time. And uh, I used to give lessons at my house, I mean, apartment. He'd come in, but we'd practice uh, the three camps together. Hmm. And we'd do two drums together, and we'd be playing the same tune sometimes the same rhythms and my hands seem like they're going twice as fast as his, even though it's the same tempo, same, like some of the same solos. And, uh, I just couldn't believe the amount of sound coming from the wrist and how calm he was. And that's that. And like, you know, you see it in Billy Higgins and you see it in Max Roach, but to be around the guy like that for eight years, uh, I can't I can't give enough credit to that guy. There's so many guys in New York City outside of the superstars that were unbelievable players. And one was him, and the other was the great Leroy Williams, who uh I never heard someone play that present individually in my life, man. So I have to give it up to those two guys, man. Those two me- meant the world to me. Yeah. And yeah. you know, like not everything Jimmy Lovelace used to say, man, it swings harder underground. And I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, you know, some of these big time places, a lot of times it's not really swinging. 
Mm-hmm. The big time money things, the big time. And that's what we're after. He was happy just going down into the grounds and whatever money he was making, but he played the way he wanted to play. It was swinging hard. And I understand that, man. I, that, 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 that means a lot to me. And I, I, and uh, I, I just want to give that name out there, Jimmy Lovelace and Leroy Williams. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, mm. obviously, we're we're all about um, sort of uh, celebrating and 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 um, recognizing lesser known cats. I, you know, most of the most of the drummers we've interviewed on this podcast are not household names, mm-hmm. um, but they're they're either uh, on the ground or underground. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's about time to get you out of here, man. I'll, I will let you go. Thank um, you, bro. But really appreciate you uh, joining us, and it was great talking yeah. with you. Thanks for having me, man. All right, cheers. Have fun in Schenectady. <laughs> there you go, Joe Farnsworth. Thanks again to him. That was a fun hang. His new record, In What Direction Are You Headed, is available wherever you get music, along with the countless other recordings Joe has appeared on. Next week, Matt Krause will be interviewing John J.R. Robinson. Yes, that J.R. Robinson. The J.R. Robinson. Once in a while, we land a big fish, and I can't think of any bigger than that, guys. So we're excited about that, looking forward to it, and hope you check it out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.